Hello, you're listening to episode 55 of Infraction, our true crime podcast. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And before we begin, it should be noted that a large amount of the information for today's episode has come from episode one of season one of Robbie Coltrane's Critical Evidence Documentary. This documentary, along with all the other sources I used to research this episode, are in the description box as always. So, today's episode is, once again, set in England, and we start on Saturday, December 21st, 2002, in Upton, a village in Peterborough in Cambridgeshire. On December 21st, 2002, the weather was cold, dark and rainy, as an off-duty fireman cycled along a road surrounded by fields. Just up the road from where he was cycling was a beauty spot known locally as Dead Man's Hollow. As the off-duty fireman cycled up towards Dead Man's Hollow, he smelt smoke and something worse. As a fireman, it was a smell he had become all too accustomed to, the smell of burning flesh. Oh. He cycled towards the smoke and entered the conservation area. There, in the middle of Dead Man's Hollow, he saw a body on fire. The man rushed over to the body that, despite the rain, was still burning. He quickly called the police and the fire brigade and awaited their arrival. So was there fire around him or was the body really like the only source of the flames? Um, Yeah, basically his body was the only source of the flames and there was like some other things around him uh, that were also on fire. But um, yeah, it wasn't like... I don't know, like a barn that was on fire and a body trapped in or something like that. It was just, yeah, him laying out in the open in the field. Gosh. The traffic department quickly arrived and closed off the road, whilst Detective Inspector Bert Dean arrived on the scene. At the scene, other local police officers were there, but nobody had touched the burning body or attempted to put the fire out. D.I. Dean was quick to point out to the fire department that spraying the body with a jet of water could wash away evidence and that they should come up with another plan. It was clear that the victim was deceased. Putting out the fire to preserve life was not a priority. Instead, the priority was to deal with the situation as quickly as possible in order to preserve evidence. D.I. Dean made the decision to put out the fire using a fine spray mist from the hoses, This would hopefully extinguish the fire in the gentlest way possible and minimise the risk of losing evidence. The fine mist spray worked and the fire was extinguished. The next dilemma, however, was the rain. D.I. Dean was concerned that the rain would also have an impact on the evidence at the scene and he quickly instructed for a tent to be put up around the body. Upon inspection of the surroundings, it was noted that Dead Man's Hollow had not been the crime scene. There was no blood anywhere and no signs of a struggle. There was, however, tyre tracks in the mud that showed that a car had reversed up to the gate by the field. These tyre marks were accompanied by footprints and then a long mud imprint that appeared to be where the body had been dragged out from the car and onto the grass. My God. Inside the tent that now covered the body, investigators began to search around the body to find any signs of his identification. Despite the severity of the burns, they were able to identify that the victim was male. However, that was about all they were able to conclude. Next, DS Mary Gold arrived on the scene and his job as the exhibit officer was to log all the evidence that surrounded the victim. He noted that close to the body was a cigarette lighter and a nozzle from a petrol can. Next to those items was a bin bag that was partially burnt. Inside this bin bag was a large amount of blood-soaked paper towel, 
an empty packet from a pair of surgical gloves, and pieces of charred paper. Once all this evidence was logged, it was taken to a lab for forensic testing. This sounds just like the most baked crime scene ever, doesn't it? Like the tyre marks and being so obvious where they'd moved the body and then to leave literally the items they'd started the fire with, as well as, and I mean clearly they intended probably to burn the evidence, like the surgical gloves, etc. But it just seems ridiculous that someone wouldn't check that they'd actually managed to do any of that. Because instead they've just left loads of evidence, haven't they? Yeah, I think you're right though. I think they probably thought that it would go up in flames. And like right, right, right at the end of this um, episode, we'll hear kind of how much petrol they used. And so I think I think ultimately they did think that everything would just go up in flames. But obviously um, the police put the fire out just in time. And the investigators who I've seen interviews with, they said, you know, they thought like another 30 seconds and that whole bag of evidence they thought would go up in flames. So yeah, maybe the petrol can and the lighter would be left. But the bin bag that had the bloody paper towels and the other things in it, um, the investigators really did think, you know, another 30 seconds and that probably would have gone up. So I think it was just unfortunate for the perpetrators that, um, yeah, I guess that the police got there in time. Oh, interesting. So back at the lab, the forensic test revealed that the blood on the paper towels matched the victim. The packet from the surgical gloves no longer had the gloves inside them, but the packet did have a serial number on it. The most interesting bit of evidence, however, was the torn up bits of paper. The forensic teams worked tirelessly to put the bits of paper back together in the hopes that they would reveal who the victim was. Whilst the teams worked on the evidence found at Dead Man's Hollow, medical examiners were examining the victim's body. An x-ray carried out revealed that the victim had sustained three gunshot wounds to his head. One shot was just below his right eye, the second shot was on the left side of his nose, and the third shot had hit him in the chin. All three bullets were still lodged in his skull. When these bullets were removed, it was discovered that they weren't real bullets, They were pellets that had been fashioned out of a metal bar. The bullets had been homemade. The ME then concluded that these shots had not been the cause of death. The victim had been stabbed several times in the torso, and these stab wounds were sporadic and were all over his chest and stomach. The victim had also sustained stab wounds to his arms, which indicated that he had fought back. Unfortunately, the autopsy did not reveal any other information about the possible identity of the victim. The investigating team decided to use a forensic sketch artist to draw images of what the victim might have looked like. This was incredibly difficult given the severity of the burns, but the experts were able to draw a few images based on the parts of the victim's face that were not as burnt and the general height and build of the man. They were also able to accurately sketch the man's teeth as these had not been damaged by the fire. The finalised image was printed and circulated in the surrounding area, along with a photo of the cigarette lighter and a few images of the piece of paper that had been found in the bin bag next to the body. Whilst this poster was circulated, and whilst the forensic team back at the lab were trying to piece together the torn-up bits of paper, D.I. Dean and D.S. Merigold reviewed the photos of the crime scene. The pair concluded that they thought that they might have more than one perpetrator. They said that it would have taken a huge amount of strength to carry the victim out of the car and drag him into the field where he was found. 
They thought it would have been almost impossible for one person to have been able to do that. In addition, the investigative pair questioned if this murder was perhaps the work of an organised crime gang. They said that the ferociousness of the attack was similar to that of a gangland murder. The police had over 50 detectives working on this investigation. Nobody of the victim's description had been reported missing, so officers went door to door in the local area to ask families if anyone from their family was missing and they'd not reported it. Their door-to-door searches revealed nothing. It's so hard to imagine, isn't it, that someone can... There can just be no matches for someone being found dead and them, like, asking in an area. It's just so hard to comprehend that not a single person would be like, oh, actually, I do recognise them. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, or, like, so-and-so hasn't turned up to work or, you know, even if it's not a family member, yeah, it's hard to imagine that nobody is missing this victim. Yeah, it's really sad. So by now, months had passed... And the police not only had no leads as to who their murderer or murderers might be, but they also had no idea who their victim was. When it seemed like there was no more avenues to investigate, the forensic teams analysing the pieces of paper got their first break in the case. They managed to make out some words on the piece of paper and were able to identify that it looked like a memo for a medical appointment. More importantly, however, they were able to identify two names – The names on the memo were Armstrong and Talbot. Although it seemed like an almighty effort and a huge task, D.I. Dean said that he felt that he had no other option than to write to every Armstrong and Talbot in the Cambridgeshire area, enclosing the poster that had a sketch of their victim on and the photo of the torn-up pieces of memo. He asked the individuals he wrote to whether they recognised the memo. Perhaps, not unsurprisingly, they did not receive any positive leads from sending out these letters to every individual with the surname Armstrong or Talbot, and because of this, the police were back to square one. And I know that they were probably limited with options, but it seems to me a little bit like that could have jeopardised the case, because that memo surely could easily have actually been the perpetrator, and therefore sent someone like into hiding or mm-hmm. to flee the country... Yeah, that's a good point, actually. That's not something I thought about when I was um, researching this, but that's a really good point. Yeah, I guess it was I guess it was a risk that they had to take um, because they had no other investigative leads. They had nowhere else to go with it. Um, but yeah, that's interesting, so I hadn't thought of that. So when all hope seemed a bit lost, at a time when the police had run out of investigative options, one of the investigators saw a news article that reported on the work of a Dr. Black. This report said that Dr Black had managed to successfully identify a victim in Lancashire by analysing isotopes. Dr Black is an expert in isotope geotechnology at the University of Reading. Isotopes build up in our body over time, and with the case in Lancashire, Dr Black had been able to examine the isotopes in the victim's bones to identify where that victim had likely grown up and lived – This had allowed detectives to narrow down their search area and eventually locate the victim's family. D.I. Dean reached out to Dr. Black and explained that they had a victim who they could not identify. Dr. Black analysed the tooth from the man. In Robbie Coltrane's documentary that I mentioned earlier, Dr. Black explained that lead isotopes are accumulated through the air and air pollution in early life and this is found in a person's tooth. Teeth are usually fully formed by the age of 14 
and therefore any isotopes found in the teeth are a good indicator of where that individual grew up and spent their early years. Based on the isotopes found in the victim's teeth, Dr Black was able to conclude that the victim had been born and raised in Eastern Europe. Next, Dr Black examined the victim's femur bone. He explained that bone continues to change every six to seven years and therefore the isotopes found in the bones would give a good indicator of where the victim had been living for the last six to seven years. Dr Black said that the isotopes found in the victim's bones could only have come from one place, Sizewell Power Station in Suffolk. He concluded that the victim had lived in Suffolk close to Sizewell Power Station within the previous three to six years. What are you watching? That's so specific. It's to do with the... um, like the radio what's it called radioactivity is that what it's called and um that has come from that particular power station so it was just it was very specific but it was just because it just so happened that he'd grown up oh he'd been living sorry in an area close to a power station that had very specific radioactivity levels of that kind i'm not proclaiming to know it because i really don't understand it but that's kind of how he explained it oh that's amazing isn't it Yeah, it's incredible. So incredible. And this, of course, was a huge break in the investigation uh, because they finally had some, albeit a very small amount of information, about their victim. D.I. Dean made the decision to send out inquiry letters to all individuals called Talbot and Armstrong in Suffolk and the surrounding towns and villages. In total, he wrote to 2,099 people. In September 2003, HR consultant Vanessa Armstrong was about to leave home to go to Norwich to pick up her son. As she was about to leave the house, an envelope came through her letterbox and landed on her mat. She picked up the envelope and saw the words Cambridgeshire County Constabulary imprinted on the back of the envelope. Her heart sunk. She thought that she'd gotten a speeding ticket. She opened the envelope and pulled out the letter. She read the words that Cambridgeshire police were investigating a murder in Peterborough. Vanessa stopped reading after that first sentence. She was already late and she didn't know anything about any murder, especially not one that had happened in Peterborough. She tossed the envelope and the letter onto her console table with the view that she would look at it when she got home. As she threw the envelope to the side, a brightly coloured poster fell out. She bent and picked it up and stared at the images on the page. She noted the sketch of the man, the big red words that read murdered, and then she noticed the photo of the ripped up pieces of paper. Her stomach dropped and she picked up her phone to call the number for the Cambridgeshire police. She told them that she did recognise the memo and she knew exactly what that memo was because she had written it. Oh my God, so she worked at the medical place? Mm-hmm. What are the... T- oh my God, that's crazy that she read that. Well, yeah, why did it even get posted to her? Sorry, carry on. It got posted to her because she, she, she had the surname Armstrong. Oh, right, I see, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they wrote to everyone in that area um, and the surrounding areas after Dr. Black's report came out. Oh, so her name was on it because she'd, like, signed it, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly, oh, okay. yeah, exactly. So, after nine months of investigating, the police had their first real lead. They asked Vanessa Armstrong if they could drive down and speak to her. She said that she was literally walking out the door to drive to Norwich to pick up her son, but that she would be home at 430 When she arrived back home with her son, the police were already waiting outside. She invited them in and told them that she had written the memo at work. 
she said she worked in HR at Cooper Roller Bearings in Kings Lynn. Cooper Roller Bearings was a manufacturing factory and she had written the memo to a colleague, a Paul Talbot. She said that part of her role as HR consultant was to organise yearly medical assessments for all the employees in the factory and this memo to Paul Talbot had been his reminder that his medical assessment was coming up. The medical assessment had been scheduled on the 18th of December, three days before the victim had been found. Vanessa told the police that Paul Talbot wasn't their victim, though. He couldn't be, because he was still very much alive. The police looked into this, and sure enough, their victim couldn't be Paul, because he was alive. This led the police to believe that possibly the memo had ended up next to the body, because maybe the murder had taken place at the factory where Vanessa had worked. Vanessa had explained to the police the process of what would normally happen with the memos. She said that she would have written it and then she would have put it in Paul Talbot's pigeonhole. He would then have taken it and when he had gone for his medical appointment, he would have given it to the nurse. The nurse would then have performed the medical and once it was done, she would rip the memo up into six or eight pieces and drop it into the bin. If you can remember, the memo was found in a black bin liner along with the bloody paper towels and an empty packet of surgical gloves. The police followed the journey of the memo and concluded that it was very likely that their victim had been murdered in the nurse's room of the factory where Vanessa worked. The murder had taken place, the perpetrator or perpetrators had used the paper towel in the medical room to clean up the blood, they'd put it in the bin and then they'd taken the contents of the bin with them. The police went to the factory and searched the nurse's station. This was some nine months after the murder had occurred, but they were hopeful that they might be able to find some evidence in the room. DS Merigold searched the nurse's room whilst D.I. Dean stood outside to make sure nobody entered. DS Merigold went through all the cupboards and he finally found what he was searching for, a pack of surgical medical gloves. He looked on the back of the packet and found what he was looking for. The serial number on that pack was exactly the same as the serial number on the packet that they had in evidence. Both D.I. Dean and D.S. Merigold left the factory and called in a forensic team. They were certain that the team would find some forensic evidence in there that pointed to a murder having occurred. Yeah, because what we know about the injuries as well, you really think that like a luminal test might light the place up. Mm -hmm, Exactly, exactly. Unfortunately, though, at first their searches revealed nothing. The team spoke to D.I. Dean and explained that they'd not found any evidence of blood splatters. And like you said, Sal, they said that they understood that months had passed. But if someone had been stabbed and shot in that room, there should have been signs of it. The forensic team were all about ready to pack up and leave when D.S. Marigold stopped them. He had remembered something from one of his many conversations with Vanessa Armstrong, Vanessa had mentioned that earlier that year, the layout of the medical room had changed around. The forensic team asked the staff to put the room back to the way it had been before, and then they redid their tests. This time, they found traces of blood in the grouting of the tiles, grouting that had previously been hidden by cabinets and the medical bed. Oh my god. This blood matched the blood of their victim. The police now had their crime scene. This feels like there's such good police work in this case. Oh, Sally, it's excellent. It honestly is. It is so good. They just don't give up. It's incredible. It really is. So next, the investigators looked into the other members of staff that worked at the factory. They noted from their searches that there was a bodyguard who had worked on the night shift at the factory. 
His name was Nishan Bakunst, and what would you know, he worked a shift that had finished in the early hours of Saturday the 21st, and he had not been seen since. The police looked into Bakunst and found out that he was an Armenian who had moved to the UK four years before as an asylum seeker. The police thought they'd identified their victim. A man who had lived in Eastern Europe and had then come to the UK, he'd worked at the factory that they knew was their crime scene, and he had disappeared on the same day that their body was found. Then, their investigation took a turn when it was discovered that 25-year-old Nishan Bakunst was still very much alive and living in Great Yarmouth in the east of England. The police hadn't identified their victim, they had instead potentially identified their murderer. In October 2003, ten months after their victim had been found, officers arrested Nishan Bakunst on suspicion of murder. They also arrested his wife, Arpine, as an accessory to murder. At this point, was it just because of the timeline or was there additional evidence? When they arrested him, there wasn't really any additional evidence. Um, And I think it's quite difficult because at the time that he was arrested, Nishan was deemed psychologically and medically unfit to be questioned by the police. So it put them in a bit of a awkward situation because what I think they wanted to obviously do was arrest him or at least interview him under caution and speak to him about this and just see if the links that they had made were correct. Uh, But when he was deemed psychologically and medically unfit to be questioned, that kind of scarpered their plans. Um, So basically then the police realised that their only option was to question his wife and hope that she gave something away or that the searches of the Bakunst home uh, might give them some evidence as well. Mm. In the Bakunst home, the police found records that showed that Nishan owned a knife and a gun. The police looked into this type of gun, and specialists confirmed that that specific type of gun could be used to fire homemade bullets. Other records they uncovered also showed that he had gone to a petrol station at 6.03am on the day that the victim had been found, and on that morning, Bakunst had bought a petrol can and filled it with five litres of unleaded fuel. Blimey, that's kind of as good a evidence you can possibly want. Absolutely. And that evidence, coupled with the fact that Nishan Bakunst worked at the factory where the murder had taken place, that was almost all the evidence the police needed to charge him. However, when they had tested the DNA and fingerprint on the cigarette lighter that had been found by the victim's body, it didn't match Nishan Bakunst or his wife Arpine. The police went in and questioned Arpine again, and they explained the situation. They said that they had evidence to charge her husband with murder, unless she gave them any evidence to the contrary. Arpine opened up, and when she started talking, she didn't stop. She told the police that their victim was called Sarko. She told the police that Sarko was a very bad and dangerous man, She told them that he had been living with the Bakunst family and that he had been trying to sell Arpine into a prostitution ring. The police put out the name Sarko to Interpol and Belgium authorities responded. They said that Sarko was the nickname for 42-year-old Hovan Amirian. The Belgian authorities told D.I. Dean and D.S. Merigold that Sarko had connections to the mafia and that he was wanted for murder in several countries across Europe. They explained that Nishan Bakunz had also been in Belgium at some point and that he was a known associate of Sarko's. The two had been partners in crime. 
But then Bacunce had left the Mafia and had moved to the UK as an asylum seeker. Here, he had married and started a family. The work he had been doing as a security guard had been his attempt at honest work. Arpine told the police that Sarko had appeared at their door a few months before he'd been killed. He had demanded to stay with them, stating that he was on the run. He didn't believe that Nishan was trying to turn his life around, and quite frankly, he didn't care. He needed a place to stay, and Nishan Bakunst was going to provide that for him in his family home. When Nishan went to work on his night shifts, he took Sarko with him because he didn't like the idea of Sarko being in the house with his wife and children when he wasn't there. Whilst Nishan did his night shift as a security guard at the factory, Sarko would sleep in the medical room on the bed in there. This arrangement had been happening for several months. Arpine explained that her husband wanted Sarko gone, but that he wouldn't leave. Then, things came to a head when Sarko started talking to Nishan about selling his wife into a prostitution ring. The police asked Arpine if that had been the final straw, if that was the reason Nishan had decided to kill Sarko. But Arpine said no, it wasn't him. The officers stood up and went to leave the interview room. But just as they got to the door... Arpine gave them their final bit of evidence. She said, quote, It wasn't my husband who killed Sarko. It was my father. What? You understated that as evidence. <laughs> what would you call it? A bombshell. <laughs> so, Arpine's father, Misha Chatsharajan, lived in Holland but officers found evidence that he had been staying in Great Yarmouth in a hotel in December in 2002. Some officers went to the hotel and the staff there gave them a sheet of paper that Misha had had to sign when he stayed there. This sign-in sheet had a fingerprint on it and that fingerprint matched the print that forensics had pulled from the lighter used to light the petrol that had been poured on Sarko. This gave the police everything they needed. It gave them two murderers, as they had always suspected, and their victim had finally been identified. On the night of Friday 21st, 2002, Sarko had accompanied Nishan to work as usual and had gone to sleep in the medical room. As planned, in the early hours of the morning, Misha turned up to the factory and Nishan let him in. Misha then entered the medical room with Nishan behind him. It's unclear who did what but it's very likely that both Nishan and Misha together shot and stabbed Sarko. It's possible that just one of them committed the actual murder, but there is no doubt that they were both involved in cleaning up the crime scene. They used enormous amounts of paper towel to wipe up Sarko's blood, and they put this in the bin. They grabbed the bag out of the bin and put it in Nishan's car along with Sarko's body. They then drove from Kingsling to Peterborough, that journey is around 37 miles, and at that time in the morning, with no traffic, it would likely have taken them just under an hour. It has never been disclosed why they decided to drive so far away to dump Sarko's body, but presumably it was because they thought it would be less likely to link back to them. Doesn't it seem crazy as well that they actually did it at their place of work, and then went to such an extreme length to hide the body? Yeah, but I guess it's kind of means, isn't it? It's like if he's the only, if Nishan is the only person who's the security guard there and he knows that no one's going to come in until the morning and this is all going down sort of just after midnight, like the very, very early hours of the morning, 
it's quite handy. They've got hours and hours when they know that realistically nobody's going to turn up. Oh, yeah, I hadn't really thought about it like that. And I guess on top of that, they knew that Sarko would be, uh, they'd be able to kind of, what's the phrase? Like, attack him without him. Oh, my God, what the fuck is that phrase? Yeah, like, he'd know why he was there. There wouldn't be a sort of, like, a struggle of, like, why are you taking me to a dark alleyway? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That. Yeah, what I was looking for was, yeah, they took him by surprise because he was just asleep. So they just literally entered the room and then, well, they shot him because they thought that that would kill him. And obviously it didn't. When he started fighting back, that's when they stabbed him. So, yeah, I think in their mind, they would just be able to kill him without any kind of struggle because he was asleep. But obviously that, that didn't transpire and the homemade bullets weren't strong enough or whatever. Mm. So after they'd driven from Kings Lynn to Peterborough, when they got to Dead Man's Hollow, they reversed the vehicle up to the gated field. They pulled Sarko's body out, doused him in petrol and set him alight. They shoved the bag of rubbish under his body, presumably because they thought it would burn too and the evidence would be destroyed. What they hadn't counted on was that the paper towels would take longer to set alight because they were so wet with blood and unfortunately for them, the fire was put out before the bag could go up in flames. Well, and also, didn't you say it was a really horrible evening as well? Yeah, what, but what does that have to... Oh, as in, like, the bag might have got too wet kind of thing? Yeah, like, I'd imagine that um, it would have, it would actually be quite difficult in a way to start a fire in those mm-hmm. conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you. So I'm kind of, like, surprised that's what they tried to do, but I suppose they assumed that would really get rid of, like, absolutely everything. Yeah, and maybe they didn't think that many people would be out because it was so rainy or... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. As I kind of alluded to earlier, though, the investigators said that basically if that bag had burnt, it's incredibly likely that Misha and Nishan would never have been caught and that Sarko would never have been identified, as the only way the police were able to find any connection to them was through that memo that was in the bag. The pair stood trial for murder in October 2005, Despite being deemed unfit to be questioned in 2003, by the trial in 2005, Nishan Bakunst was deemed psychologically and medically fit enough to stand trial. Do we know why he, what specifically meant that he wasn't in the first place or not? No, I did look into it, but there was just really no information about it. Um, I'm not sure what it was, um, but presumably because he could then stand trial a few years later, it was maybe just like a breakdown or something like that. Like, maybe because he'd been caught. I mean, I really don't know. Mm, yeah. And also, I suppose, if he had been involved in, like, mafia things and stuff, actually, like, that probably would have been quite traumatic, maybe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, during the trial, uh, both Nishan and Misha blamed each other for the murder. However, one of the expert witnesses at the trial was a pathologist, and he testified to the fact that it was likely that both men had committed the murder together. He said that it was very unusual for a murderer to use one method of killing, such as a gun, and then change to use a knife. Quite surprisingly to me, Nishan Bakunst was found guilty of murder, but Misha was cleared of murder, and instead found guilty of assisting an offender. At the sentencing, Mrs Justice Cox said, quote, Although the victim was a violent and dangerous man, there is no evidence to suggest that you were provoked to kill him in this way. She then sentenced 28-year-old Nishan Bakuns to life imprisonment with a minimum term of 16 years. After sentencing Bakunst, she turned to Misha and said, quote, 
It is in the public interest for you to be severely punished. You knew Sarko had been murdered, yet you deliberately set about helping the Kunz destroy all signs and cover his tracks. She then sentenced him to three years in prison. When his sentence was finished, he was deported back to the Netherlands. Only three? I know. I know. How do you say to someone you deserve to be severely punished for a very brutal murder and then say three years? I mean, I really don't know. I guess it's because he was only found guilty of assisting an offender, um, which probably has quite a low minimum term. Yeah, but it just seems surprising, doesn't it? Because like, there's not actually that definitive evidence as to who did what. Like, I know there's the lighter and stuff, but beyond that, it is slightly unknown quantity. Like, it just seems insane that they ended up walked away with such different sentences but i suppose like you say like different crimes carry different maximum terms but i don't understand why he was only found guilty of assisting an offender it was it was very clear that he was there that he helped that he was there when he was murdered you know he's obviously his defense is that he wasn't the one who who killed sarko i think it does said otherwise yeah exactly exactly um and I think though I think they definitely were both involved because I kind of agree it seems like two completely different tactics but then again maybe I don't know because the gun didn't work maybe then obviously the next solution was to attack with a knife I don't know if it's because the gun and the knife were Nishan's and not Misha's that maybe that's kind of why Nishan was given a much higher sentence and maybe the murder was linked to him but I mean (sighs) He said, you know, there's quite clear evidence that Misha's lighter was used to burn the body and he was there. He helped drag Sarko's body out of the vehicle. So I don't understand. That's not just assisting an offender, is it? That's mutilation of a corpse and all host of other things. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I totally agree. So in 2004, before the trial of her husband and father... Arpine was also convicted of attempting to prefer the course of justice by concealing and disposing of evidence after Sarko's murder. She was just 23 years old at the time, uh, but I can't find anywhere any information about what sort of sentence she received. It just says that she was convicted. Um, I feel like maybe then if there's not that much about what sentence she actually got, like I wonder if she got a suspended sentence or something. Yeah, I think maybe she might have done. And I hope that she did. I mean... What Nishan did was obviously incomprehensible. It was awful. But, you know, in a way, I guess his defense is that he was doing it to protect his family from a very bad man. Um, But, you know, they had kids and stuff like they had young children. So I hope that both their parents didn't end up going to jail over this when ultimately I think Arpine, yes, she did cover up some stuff, but she was also the one who um, gave the police the evidence that they needed to to get um to convict misha so i don't know maybe it was a suspended sentence like i kind of hope that it was yeah exactly and i agree with what you said that that actually their children don't just didn't deserve to grow up without either of their parents so mm-hmm. i kind of hope that she didn't serve any actual time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think going back to what you said earlier I think, you know, it does just have to be said that the police work in this case was so phenomenal. I think it's amazing that they didn't give up um, and they deserve a huge amount of respect from that. And when, you know, like even when they found out that their victim, like who their victim was and what his past was like and his criminal history and the fact that he was wanted for murder and stuff, it didn't stop them trying to find each person involved in his murder, which I think is, you know, an outstanding because they are, 
you know, upholding the law, they are still investigating what was a really dreadful crime because although there might have been reasons why Nishan did what he did, you can't just take the law into your own hands like that. And it was, you know, kind of going back to what the judge said, it was a really brutal, horrible attack. Um, So, yeah, I mean, there were other ways to go about it, wasn't there? Like he could have just dobbed him into Interpol and got him arrested. He didn't have to take it into his own hands to get to kill him and try and dispose of his body in such a brutal way. So I think it's amazing that the police put so much work into investigating this from such little evidence as well. Um, and D.I. Dean, who I've mentioned a lot in this case, he delayed his retirement by months just so he could close this case. So yeah, I think it's incredible and it's definitely worth noting. Yeah, I agree. Like I feel like in a major perception, but I feel like we've seen cases go cold with a lot less evidence a lot more mm. evidence even as a starting place and it mm-hmm. sounds to me like they did it to the letter of the law <laughs> love it <laughs> thank you so much everyone for listening if you're able to support us with a few of your pennies we'd be so grateful if you pulled on over to patreon and supported our podcast if you aren't able to support us on patreon then you can help us reach more people by following us on instagram and facebook and engaging with us on those platforms and please tell your friends thank you so much to everyone who continues to suggest us to other true crime podcast fans we love you and we see you so thank you yeah i would totally echo that i think we really see big spikes when you do put those posts up on the true crime pages etc um it's very noted so thank you to all of you who do take the time out of your day to do that yeah we really really appreciate it and we do see really big spikes when you guys do that so it's amazing for us so thank you um but yes that's all from us we will see you soon bye bye